nice to be with you this morning. So, Pentecost, as Lee said, the church's birthday. And that's a really good description because on this day, the church had its life breathed into it. The church had its life breathed into it. So, remember the Genesis story when God formed man out of the dust and it says he breathed into him and he's given life. A similar thing happened to the church on the day of Pentecost. Let's just read um, the first four verses of the passage again, and that's what we're going to be focusing on. So have that open in front of you. Chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so the day the first followers of Jesus had the life of God breathed into them. Spirit literally means in Hebrew is one of the words they use for breath. That kind of animating, invisible thing about someone that gives that person life. So when the Spirit came, when the wind blew at Pentecost, the image is of these first followers of Jesus having the breath of life breathed into them. One of the most um, wonderful pictures and prophecies of that in the Old Testament is the story of Ezekiel's dry bones. You know that story? It's a story best read in a Jamaican accent, I think. Um, And in it we read about Ezekiel. I think I've got a picture. Here we are. Um, We read about Ezekiel being led into a valley full of dead people, full of dry bones. And we're told, them bones were very dry. <laughs> that came out better than I was expecting it to actually. Well, is that right? No. I doubt it's okay. That's good. So, um, these bones were very dry. And the Lord said to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. And he says, prophesy and say to these bones, live. And we read in this story that that Ezekiel prophesies. He says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these these slain that they may live. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. It's an amazing picture of the church, isn't it? A vast army of dead bones brought to life. That's the picture that we're meant to think of when we hear the wind blew through that house and shook it because the promise of Ezekiel's prophecy is that God will put his spirit in us and we will live. God will put his spirit in us and we will live. So at Pentecost, what we see is the difference, the critical difference, the essential difference between dead religion and living Christianity. Between dead religion and living Christianity. What it means, what the essence of, of, of true, authentic, living spirituality really is. Now, in a sense, this story is pretty unique in that what happens here in this story isn't by any means normal Christian experience. Even for the first followers of Jesus, 
Their, their, their experience after this time wasn't that they could always, from this point on, speak in lots of different languages. They didn't constantly walk around with a flame of fire over their heads, and they weren't constantly being blown about by the wind. I mean, apart from anything else, it would just be weird, wouldn't it? So that's not normal Christian experience. But that doesn't mean that this event is so unique that it has nothing to say with us to us. What happened to these disciples is in this kind of credibly intense point in their walk with God, they were caught up into a moment at which the world changed. This kind of great turning point in the history of the world. And they were caught up into it. And what these, um, what these kind of phenomena are, are basically signs of an underlying reality that point to the essence of authentic Christianity. So we've talked about the wind, how the wind blows and brings life to these Christians. And what I want us to see today is that what it means to have the life of God is three things. To receive the breath of life from the Spirit of God is to have a living presence with us, an overwhelming reality before us, and an overflowing message out of us. A living presence, an overwhelming reality, and an overflowing message. That's what I want us to see. Should we, let's pray, actually, as we, as we get into the passage. Pray that God will show us these things. Lord Jesus, we really pray that you would open our eyes and you open our hearts to the reality and the presence of you with us today. Lord, we long, we know that in so many ways we are still very much <laughs> um, dead or even comatose in many ways. Our experience isn't the same living reality of Pentecost. Lord, we're really aware that we need to be revived, to have the breath of life flow into us, to become more aware of your presence with us, more in awe of this overwhelming reality, and have this overflowing message for the world coming out of us. Lord, we really pray that you'd work by your Holy Spirit now to this effect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all then, a living presence. So the wind blew, and then the next phenomena that happened to them was they saw what looked like flames that kind of arrived in the room and then separated and went on each of their heads. Now when you see fire in the Old Testament, what it means is it's a sign of God's presence. So when Abraham and God made his covenant to Abraham for that first time, he appeared as a flaming torch. That's how God appeared to Abraham. And then when he appeared to Moses, he appeared as a burning bush. And then when the law came to Israel, we're told that fire fell on Mount Sinai as Moses was given the law. And the thing about fire is that it's dangerous. The thing about fire is you've got a kind of stay away from it because otherwise it will consume you and kill you. So when the law came on Mount Sinai, only Moses could go up the mountain and only Moses could stand in the presence of the Lord and all the rest of Israel had to stay a certain distance away from the mountain else they'd be consumed by this terrifying reality of the Lord's presence. And yet at Pentecost, the 120 disciples are in this small room, 
and fire appears in the midst of them. And not just there in the room, but it comes and sits on every single one of their heads. This fire that before could kill you if you got too close suddenly became real and present to each individual Christian there. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what he's saying? What's happening is for the first time in history, God's presence is being given to every single one of his followers. Before, it was just the prophets who could come close to God's presence. Before, only Moses could go up the mountain. Now, all of the followers of Jesus have God's presence with them, have God's presence in them, in fact. But what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean to have God's presence, God's living presence with you? And we've got to understand this, unless if we're to really know what it means, what we need the Holy Spirit to do to revive us, we need to understand what it means to have God's presence in us and with us. In, in, um, just before Jesus died, he spent some time with his disciples in the upper room, and he gave them what's often called um, the farewell discourse. And in it, he describes, um, he's talking about his death and going away from them, but also his ascension and leaving them. And so he's talking about, he's kind of preparing them for being, him being away from them in the body. And in it, in chapter um, 14, he says this. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. You see, the essence of the Christian's life, the kind of living, revitalized Christian life, is knowing the presence of the risen Lord Jesus with us. The Spirit works to make Jesus himself present and real with us. And this is what gives us life and vitality as a Christian. Let's explore this a bit more. C.S. Lewis, here's here's pictured C.S. Lewis, um, and he wrote... Uh, one, he wrote the Narnia stories, as many of you know, and he also he was an Oxford Don, and he wrote lots of other books as well. And he wrote a really remarkable book called A Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. And in it, he describes his experience of losing his wife, Joy, um, to cancer after only three years of marriage. And it's a really painfully honest book about the experience of grief and of being separated from the one we love. And in it, he writes about what people often say when, um, when they're trying to comfort you and give you some consolation. He says that people often say that the person we lose lives with us in our memory. The person we lose lives with us in our memory. And he reacted really quite strongly to that sentiment. He says they don't live. They don't live. Whatever they do, they don't live. To say a person lives in our memory is like saying that the um, ancient Egyptians, when they mummified their corpses, kept that person alive to them. He says corpses, ghosts, memories, all different ways of spelling the word dead. And for him, the reason he reacted so strongly for that is because he realized, and he, the thing that made the kind of the living presence of someone and the memory of someone so different 
is not just the kind of the kind of tangibility and the, the, the actual reality of that person um, with you. Um, it's not just that. What makes the memory and the living presence so different is that the living, the, the memory, with a memory, you're completely in control. With a memory, you're completely in control. When someone's with you, that other person is part of your experience. You're not in complete control of the situation, but with a memory, you are. So this is what he says. He says, I think about her nearly always. The facts about her. Real words, looks, laughs, and actions of hers. But it is my own mind that selects and groups them. Already less than a month after her death, I can feel the slow, insidious beginning of a process that will make the joy I think of, this joy is his wife, um, into, into more and more an imaginary woman. The reality is no longer there to check me, to pull me up short as the real joy so often did, so unexpectedly, by being so thoroughly herself and not me. Do you see what he's saying? As you remember someone, you're selecting facts about them. You're the one who chooses what you're going to think about that person, and you're in control. And so over time, slowly but surely, the real person slips away. And it's just your memories. It's just you that you're, you're kind of projecting. And this is a really, this is absolutely not the experience of Christianity with there is in Lord Jesus. It's exactly the opposite of this. And the reason is because of Pentecost. One of the really interesting problems that New Testament scholars have tried to think about is why the early Christians lost the tomb of Jesus. Within about um, 50, 150 years, a couple of generations after the early Christians, there is no mention at all of the tomb of Jesus. And scholars have wondered, why is that? How can you lose the tomb of Jesus? Because at that time, people used to go to the tombs of the martyrs and the saints and venerate these saints and venerate those tombs. They used to meet together around even Christian martyrs. Christians used to meet at these tombs and have their meetings. How can you lose the tomb of Jesus? When you lose someone, when someone dies, their spaces and their stuff becomes really significant. It's really hard to throw away the things of someone you lost. Even their Things like their shoes and socks, even everyday things, have this kind of significance, this weight to them that they didn't have before. I happen to know that Nay, my wife, doesn't really think of my shoes and socks as having any significance at all. I mean, she really doesn't. (laughs) Does that mean she doesn't love me? No. Those things are of no significance because she has me. She has the reality, the presence, the living presence of me with her. She doesn't need to have my shoes and socks as these symbols of my presence. And it's the same with the early Christians. They forgot about the tomb of Jesus because they had him. They had his reality with them. And the question is, is that reality, do we have that reality with us? Or is God more like a memory? more like the memory that C.S. Lewis was talking about. One of the main critiques of religion, and, and Christianity in particular, the last century, has been this idea that religion is just the kind of wish fulfillment. 
It's just this thing that you think up in your mind and you kind of project it onto reality. And that's your God. It's just your kind of ultimate wishes, your dreams, the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind. That's Freud. That's his idea. He says, basically, people think up things in their minds and then they project it onto this big screen and they worship God. And that's a really powerful argument against religion. And the reason it's so powerful is because it's true. That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. And the Bible diagnosed that a long time before Freud. Isaiah says, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Isaiah is talking about the God delusion. A God who is just a wish fulfillment. And the only thing that separates us from this and the, re- and, and the living Christianity is the real presence of Jesus with us. The real presence of Jesus with us. But we say, how do we know we have that presence? The disciples, they had the flame above their heads. They could see they had something tangible outside themselves that made this presence real with them. We don't have flames above our heads. How do we know? There's lots to say on this, but I just want to give you um, one kind of clue, really, which comes out of this passage, I think, in Acts 2. Also in Jesus' farewell discourse, he talks about the Holy Spirit and he says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. When he comes, he'll prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The living presence of Jesus is living when he contradicts us and when he convicts us. The living presence of Jesus is living when he contradicts us and when he convicts us. If you have a relationship and you say to that person, you're only allowed to grieve me with me in this relationship. Everything I say, you've got to say is absolutely right. Everything I say, you've got, to, you've got to totally agree with and say, John, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. And that's all they say about you. That's not a real relationship, is it? You might as well go to your room and have a thriving social life with a load of finger puppets. And yet when we come to the Bible, so often we look at it and we say, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that, actually. No, I think, I think that's wrong. And then you put it to a side. And you don't let the Bible contradict you. The stuff that you find hard, you just put to the side. And you say, I'm not going to deal with that. It's okay that you find stuff hard in the Bible. That's okay. But when you have a living, real relationship with Jesus, what you do is you say, God, I don't understand this. My perspective is so different on this issue. Please change me. Please help me to see this in the way you see it. And when you do that, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit teaching you to listen to him. The Holy Spirit changing you, molding your thoughts. You need the Holy Spirit to contradict you to know that he's real. Otherwise, it's all in your mind. The other thing the Holy Spirit does is he convicts you. He convicts you. In this passage, Peter, towards the end of it, preaches probably this really, really hard-hitting message. 
And he says, Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. That's his conclusion to this hostile audience. And what happens, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The other way you know you're dealing with the reality of God, the real presence of the living Lord Jesus, is when you are convicted and you realize that you are wrong. Now, that's different from just feeling guilty and bad about stuff. It's more specific than that. It's about when you realize when you're wrong that what you've done wrong is against God. Is against God. And when that happens, you say, God, what shall I do? How can I do this and sin against you? That's what happens here. They've realized they'd crucified Jesus, who God made Lord in Christ, and they were cut to the heart. And this is a slippery thing. So often we feel bad about stuff, but actually the reason we feel bad is because we feel ashamed. We feel we've let ourselves down. We feel we've let other people down. We feel we've failed. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying conviction, deep conviction, is when you realize at the core of your being that the, most, the biggest problem in your life is that you've turned against God and it hurts you. And the way you know that you've got this, the way you know the Holy Spirit's at work is when you know his forgiveness. When you know his forgiveness. When you realize that you've hurt God and you hear God say, I forgive you, it goes down so deep and you feel so free. But so often we have this guilt in us and we hear God say, I forgive you, and it doesn't touch us. Do you know what that means? It means that God's not real to you. That God's not actually your God. Something else is your God, a made-up God. And a made-up God can never forgive you. A made-up God will always hold that thing against you. Only God, only the living God, can offer you true and real forgiveness. These idols are dead, but they can enslave you. Only God can forgive you. Only God can set you free. Now, I'm ready to go on to my next point. That was the longest point, okay? (laughs) I know it's a scary thing when someone has three points and then they spend 20 minutes on the first point. So the first thing is we need the living presence of God with us. Secondly, we need an overwhelming reality of this God. We've started talking about this. The overwhelming reality that God is the one we sinned against and God is the one who forgives us. And when that happens... When the reality of those facts hits us, what's it like? Well, it's like you're drunk. That's what it says. It's like you're drunk. At the end of this story, the disciples burst out in the streets. They were full of joy. They were full of boldness. Before, they were locked up in this little room, and they burst out into the streets. And people heard what they said and saw what they were doing and said, they must be drunk. They must be drunk. The kind of things they're saying, the joy that they've got in them, they must just be drunk. It's an interesting comparison. Paul makes the same point in Ephesians. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. How is being filled with the Spirit like being drunk? 
When you're drunk, you're happy, aren't you? And when you're drunk, you don't get scared about stuff. You're bold and you're brave. Why is that? Why does it make you brave? Because being drunk, everyone knows that alcohol is a depressant. It kind of slows you down. How can a depressant make you so happy and so brave? Well, the reason it does is because it makes you stupid. (laughs) It stops you from seeing the reality of things. It stops you from seeing the danger of, of jumping off high things. It stops you from fearing what people think. It kind of makes you want to sing because it makes you forget about the things you're worried about. It makes you happy and it makes you brave because it makes you stupid. Being filled with the Holy Spirit does exactly the opposite. Being filled with the Holy Spirit makes you joyful and makes you brave by filling your horizons with the reality of the good news of the risen Lord Jesus. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means that you see with such profound certainty and reality that Jesus, if Jesus has forgiven you, if Jesus is for you, if Jesus loves you, what then shall I fear? What then shall I fear? One of the most, uh, one of my favourite um, quotes of this experience is from Blaise Pascal. He was probably one of the greatest thinkers in Christian history, and he, when he died, they found this um, little um, patch in his sewn into his coat jacket uh, from his diary, and it says on it, "The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November." from about half past ten in the evening until about half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Blaise Pascal was experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit, this filling which overwhelmed him with the sheer reality of the love of God. And he says, certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace. My God, my God. We need that, don't we? It's true. All of those things are true, whether you feel it or not. It's true that you have nothing to fear if you are are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear, but we need to feel it. We need to fear it. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Now, when the Acts talks about being filled with the Spirit, there's two kind of things that it talks about. It's not kind of precise language. The disciples here, and in lots of other places, it says, the disciples were filled with the Spirit, and then there comes a word. It always says, and... They were filled with the Spirit and. And normally it happens when they're in some kind of danger, when they're under threat, or when they had to speak. So here, they had to speak. They had to start talking about this good news. And it says they were filled with the Spirit and. And so this is the kind of experience which comes and goes. It's the kind of experience that God gives us when we need it most. Maybe when we're really low and desperate and, and something terrible has happened and God gives us the Spirit to fill us and remind us of his reality. Or maybe it's when we're scared or when we've got to speak. God will fill us up with the Spirit. One of the, nice, one of the great analogies I've heard of this is like a father walking along with his son. And the father's there holding his hand and they're walking along and the son knows that he loves him. But sometimes when the son falls over or when 
Then sometimes the father just picks up the son into his arms and hugs him. Now at both points, the son is completely loved, completely at one with the father. But sometimes when the father scoops him up into his arms, that reality is just so much more real and powerful and intense. And this is what it's talking about when it's talking about being filled with the Spirit. And yet, there's another way it's talked about, in, and this is the one in Ephesians, which we mentioned. And that's where it says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. So when the Spirit comes and fills you up, you're not really in control of that in the thing we've been talking about. But in this way, in this sense, it says we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? How can we be commanded to be filled with the Spirit? And how do we do that? How do we go about being filled with the Spirit? So here's another clue. Um, A parallel passage in Colossians um, says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs. It's a parallel. The first one says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs. In this one, it says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. So this is the clue. We're filled with the Spirit. The more the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, indwells us richly. As we focus on it, as we let it sink in, as we speak to one another about it. So the reality of the love of God in Christ becomes real to us. It becomes rich. It becomes, it becomes kind of written in bold in our life. And that's what it's talking about here. Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so moving on to the last point. We've seen that the life of the Christian, the authentic, revived life of a Christian, is one where the presence of God, the, present, the living presence of God is, is real and an overwhelming reality. Finally, we see in this passage an overflowing message. They were filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in many languages as the Spirit enabled them. This is a remarkable picture. So in, in Jerusalem at this time, it was a big festival, and there were people from all over the, world, all over the, kind of the, the Jewish and Roman world in Jerusalem celebrating this feast. Lots of different languages. And, these, and the disciples burst out and started speaking to them in their own languages. And one of the most amazing things about that is that these people were Galileans. Galileans were known as being really kind of parochial and not very good at languages. They, they had the kind of wrong, they have, I think it was quite guttural language, so they couldn't pronounce things properly. And yet here they were freely speaking in these languages, proclaiming the word of God. What does this mean? It means that when we're full of the Spirit, when we're full of the reality of the knowledge of the presence of God in Christ, it overflows. We can't contain it. Living Christianity overflows It overflows our lives so that we speak to those around us. But even more than that, it overflows cultures. It overflows from languages. A single culture can't contain this reality. A single language can't express this reality. It's too big. It is a reality that is for everyone, for the whole world. That is what this picture shows. There's a great um, scholar called Lamin Sana. He was a convert from Islam and he... Um, writes a lot about the history of the church and the Christian missionary movement in Africa. And he, he says um, that, he, he talks about how um, 
Christianity is a translated religion. In Islam, when you, when, you, when you go out as a missionary from Islam, you're not just proclaiming Islam, you're proclaiming the kind of Arabic culture. And so when people convert to Islam, they become Arabs, basically. They even have the same kind of calendar that Arabs have, even when you're at a different hemisphere. But in Christianity, it's very different. In Christianity, what, what Christians say when it's a living religion is that, our, that Christianity is bigger than our culture. It's bigger than the culture of the missionary. And, and what that means is it kind of relativizes the culture of the missionary and dignifies the culture of the one to whom the message is being proclaimed. And he says that that is an amazing thing because often these indigenous languages which would have died out are being given this dignity and this reality that um, because they have the Bible translated into their language. And what Christians are saying is that your culture matters. Your culture is a valid way of expressing the truth of God. Now, that's not always the case. When religion's dead, when Christianity's dead, what happens is you start to impose your culture on other people. But when it's alive, you recognize that your Christianity is bigger than a culture. It overflows it, and it can be expressed in this, in this other culture. So he says, he says this about um, African Christians. He says, People sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred nor their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. This is the Christianity I want. A Christianity that overflows culture, that overflows our lives. A Christianity that is so real that it overwhelms our fear and fills us with joy. And a Christianity that knows the living presence of the risen Lord Jesus with us day by day. Should we just pray that that would be our Christianity now? Father God, we long to know the reality of your presence in our lives more. Lord, we pray that we would be Christians, that we would be a community in whom the word of God dwells richly. We pray, O oh Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can see Jesus more clearly than we've seen before. Lord, we pray for more of that settled, full, life-filling knowledge of the reality of God's acceptance of us in Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit on us so we could know this reality for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.